Hello, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And you've arrived at this week's episode of Camping is Cancelled. On a warm summer day in May 1972, high up on a rugged trail of the Loma Prieta Mountain in Santa Cruz, California, something smooth and white in the brush along the trail caught the eye of two passing hikers. And as you might suspect, since this is a true crime podcast, this smooth white something did not end up being a mushroom. It was a human skull, a very badly decomposed human skull, and the teeny tiny tip of a massive murder investigation iceberg that was lurking just beneath the surface. The surrounding area turned up absolutely zero further evidence, and with no one reported missing with local law enforcement, the formerly sleepy town of Santa Cruz was plunged overnight into a state of panic. By April of 1973, a total of 10 people would be dead, and a payphone confession would finally bring the year-long murder spree of the six-foot-nine giant who went by Big Ed to an end. Today, we're telling you the story of one of the most notorious American serial killers to emerge from the peace and love era of the 1970s, Edmund Kemper, a.k.a. the co-ed killer. You may as well hang out with us for a while, because camping is definitely canceled. Berkeley University, just outside of Santa Cruz, was everything you're probably picturing when you think 1970s Americana. Beachy hippies, Vietnam War demonstrations, weed, people wearing bell-bottoms while they smoked weed, and lots of hitchhiking. Women were just starting to push back against the 1950s mindset that the only reason for them to go to college was to get a Mrs. degree. These women who went to universities in the 1970s were called co-eds a short version of the term co-educational, which meant that they went to a university taking both men and women. But of course, only women were called co-eds, and disgustingly but not surprisingly, this term was highly sexualized in the adult entertainment industry. There was a ridiculous amount of pornography films that featured the word co-eds, such as co-eds in bed and co-eds get it on, and it was just this kind of negative stereotype that women pursuing degrees were trying to disrupt. Two of these so-called co-eds were best friends and roommates at Fresno State University, Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Mary Lucessa. On May 7, 1972, Mary and Anita had been visiting friends in Berkeley and were hoping to hitchhike a ride to Stanford University. It wasn't long before a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy 500 slowed down to pick them up where they stood along the freeway, driven by a large but friendly-looking young man with large round glasses and a mustache. The Ford also had an A parking sticker on the back bumper, indicating that the car belonged to either an employee or student of the nearby Berkeley University. After about an hour of driving and friendly chit-chat, the Ford was in a secluded wooded area just outside of the city of Alameda, when the driver suddenly turned off onto an even more isolated dirt road and pulled out a large knife from beneath his seat. He handcuffed Mary Ann to the back seat before using the knife to force Anita into the trunk and locked her in. 
He then got back in the car and attempted to strangle Mary Ann to death with a plastic bag and a bathrobe belt, but she fought back so violently that the man panicked and stabbed her in the back multiple times before finally ending it by cutting her throat. He unlocked the trunk and initially let Anita Lucesa climb out before brutally attacking her with a knife. Like Marianne, Anita fought back so hard that for a brief moment, her attacker thought she might actually get away. But his sheer size and strength was ultimately no match for her, and she quickly succumbed to her injuries. He then drove the young woman's bodies back to his apartment, where he sexually assaulted them and took photographs, before dismembering and disposing of their remains in multiple locations within a 10-mile radius of Santa Cruz. Several days later, he flung their severed heads down the side of a ravine. Thanks to dental records, the devastated family of Mary Ann Pesci was informed that the skull we mentioned in the very beginning found alongside the trail did in fact belong to their daughter. All that was ever found of Anita Mary Lucessa was a pelvic bone. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, weighing in at a whopping 13 pounds. Ed was the middle child between his older sister, Suzanne, and his younger sister, Alan. His father went by Edmund Jr. and his mother, rather unfortunately, was named Clarnell. Edmund Jr. was a World War II veteran who after the war became an electrician at Pacific Proving Grounds, working with atomic energy. And to sum up the state of Edmund and Clarnell's marriage, Edmund Jr. famously made a statement that working with atomic energy was far preferable to being around Clarnell. Her personality was widely known to be incredibly domineering and controlling, particularly towards her husband and young son. And for a while, Edmund Jr. retreated from Clarnell as far as he possibly could into his work. But eventually, he and Carnell divorced, and he left her to raise all three children by herself, which probably was not the best choice, as Clarnell was a very committed alcoholic. Yikes, again. And also, I recall from watching a documentary about Ed that he remembers that this divorce was not a mutual decision. And Clarnell did not want to get divorced, but Edmund was like, nope, I got to get out because living with her was apparently insufferable. And that just made Clarnell despise him even more because... Him being Ed. Him being Ed and Ed Kemper, uh, son Ed, tells a psychiatrist later that Clarnell ultimately... Like what she cared about more than anything else was the perception of them having achieved the American dream, like having, you know, the the husband and the wife and the kids and the upper middle class life. But Edmund Jr. took all of that away from her by divorcing her, even though from all accounts, she brought that divorce on herself by being horrible. A witch. Right. And once Edmund Jr. was out of the picture, all she saw in her son was the husband that led her down so Mm. yeah well according to ed's sister alan clarnell once observed that the consistent rejection ed's father gave him had a noticeable negative effect on ed from as young as two years old and now you would think that this would be the point where if you notice this happening as a mom you would do everything in your power to make your child feel loved and secure but instead clarnell withheld from giving ed any of her own affection at all and the reason for doing so she said was in case it turned him gay Oh my god. 
We are going to refrain from letting ourselves rant for hours about how disgusting this is, or we will have to rename this podcast, Clarnell is Cancelled. <laughs> Has a nice ring to it. <laughs> but it should be enough to say that if you find yourself agreeing with Clarnell's parenting choices, at any level, feel free to find yourself out. Find the exit. Clarnell is Cancelled. In 1957, Clarnell relocated herself and the children to Helena, Montana, and it was while growing up there that the red flags hinting at the horrors to come with Ed were a-flying. He would do things like cut the heads, hands, and legs off his sister's dolls and leave them for his sisters to find. He also liked games that he called gas chamber and electric chair, you know, Adam's family style, where he would sit on a chair and pretend to be executed while he made one of his sisters be the executioner. I guess Wednesday Adams did kind of make that cool, but it's Wednesday Adams and not creepy little Ed yeah. Kemper. I mean, also, I would have put my sister in the chair. Mm. I would have been the executioner. <laughs> and it would have been warranted. Well, he would also torture insects, and he once buried the family's cat alive, only to dig it up and decapitate it before placing its head on a stake. The cat's only offense was that it seemed to prefer Ed's sisters over him. Yeah, I don't think Wednesday Adams ever decapitated a cat, no. so he's crossed over. Yeah, animals is the, the line. He's crossed over from macabre pastime to murdery pastime. Mm. Another cat met its demise at Ed's hands with a bayonet. And with that cat's head, he wrapped it up in his own bathrobe, which Clarnell eventually discovered in a closet. And we can't imagine that conversation went too well. Nope. Throughout grade school, Ed was obsessed with the death and as an adult would recall that he had violent fantasies about killing the girls at school with a shotgun who laughed at his unusual tallness. Which is shitty because the last thing anyone wants in high school is to get made fun of for things they are already self-conscious about. And kids are dicks. And I think we can say without excusing at all any of the things that he goes on to do. In all of this, we genuinely feel deeply sad for Ed as a child. Again, child Ed needed and deserved so much more than he was ever given. Yeah. Apparently, he had a reoccurring fantasy about swallowing a human eyeball. That's also kind of Wednesday Adams. Early 2000s fear factor. Ooh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff with ox eyeballs in uh, that. Hard Ugh. pass. Hard pass. Maybe if Ed had just been given the chance to be on fear factor, he could have scratched that eyeball itch. He also said he genuinely believed that if he just prayed hard enough, he could get God to kill everyone on the planet. Oh, man. Naturally, Ed's violent tendencies deeply concerned Clarnell, and since getting him psychological help or showing him love and affection was apparently out of question, she decided to lock a terrified Ed in the basement every night while his sisters had their own bedrooms upstairs, believing that it would toughen him up as a man. If you're like us and you have kids, enjoy feeling pretty good about your parenting choices right now. Thanks, I certainly am. But now we need to talk about Ed's arrival at the escalation station because, unsurprisingly, the violence did not end with cats. When Ed was 14, he got on a bus heading to California with plans to reconnect and live with his dad, who by this time was remarried to a German woman named Alfreda. Ed found his new stepmother to be very attractive and would fantasize about her, which 
The hot stepmom is definitely a thing in pop culture and he's a teenager, so we don't think in and of itself finding an attractive woman whom you're not biologically related to is wildly problematic, but that wasn't where it ended for Ed. And he made no attempts to hide that he would sit and openly stare at her. This made Alfreda, understandably, incredibly uncomfortable, and she was terrified of being left alone with Ed when his father would travel for work. One day, she caught Ed leering at her while she was undressed in her own bedroom, and that was the final straw. So, during Christmas of 1965, Ed's father told Ed he was just taking him to visit his grandparents for the holidays on their isolated ranch 250 miles away in North Fork, California. In reality, he never planned for it to be a short visit, and he left Ed behind with his grandparents for good. The feeling of rejection from his father was now overwhelming, and Ed was left even more isolated than before, with no sense of what his direction in life should be. He hated living in the middle of nowhere with the elderly couple, and he found his grandmother to be just as suffocating and insufferable as his mother. According to Ed, Maud was constantly belittling and emasculating both him and his grandfather. She refused to let him have friends over or attend social activities at school. She wouldn't let him watch cartoons, and most infuriating to Ed, she would confiscate the 22 rifle that his grandfather had given him because she was disturbed by Ed's increasing fondness for shooting small animals. And before anyone comes at us for this, we are going to say that we completely understand the need for ethical hunting. Hunting for food and hunting as a means of population control in areas where an overpopulation will actually pose a threat to the ecosystem is completely acceptable. But this is not what Ed was doing. It gave him pleasure to kill for the sake of killing, and he would do this obsessively for hours. Nope. On August 27th, 1964, Ed's grandfather, Edmund Sr., was on a grocery trip, and his grandmother, Maud, was in the kitchen working on one of the children's books that she authored. Ed grabbed the 22 rifle that his grandfather had given him and called to the family dog, Anka, to follow him outside. Maud yelled after him, You better not be shooting the birds again. A blinding rage engulfed Ed. He thought he had escaped one suffocating matriarch in his life, only for his grandmother Maud to slide into that role. And in a split-second decision, Ed raised the rifle to his shoulder, took aim through the screen porch door, and fired three shots. Maud slumped over the kitchen table just as Edmund Sr. pulled his pickup truck into the driveway. He smiled and waved to Ed as he began unloading groceries, and Ed would later say that he couldn't bear the thought of his grandfather having to see his wife dead. So for a second time, Ed raised the rifle to his shoulder, took aim at the back of his grandfather's head, and fired from just 30 inches away. When law enforcement arrived, they found the 15-year-old sitting perfectly calm and still on the front porch. The reason Ed gave for his actions was, I just wanted to see what it felt like to shoot grandma. He would later recall not being aware of his body and blacking out for the entire episode. And while he didn't seem to grasp the seriousness of having committed a double homicide, he did understand that this would be a major turning point in his life. 
While on trial for murdering his grandparents, Ed was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia by court-appointed psychiatrists. However, California Youth Authority psychiatrists and social workers at a Tuscadero State Hospital disagreed with this diagnosis because they said Ed showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking, quote. They also observed him to be highly intelligent and introspective, and Ed was re-diagnosed shortly after arriving at a Tuscadero in 1973 with antisocial, narcissistic, and schizotypal personality disorders. And schizotypal means maybe you have the paranoia that can accompany schizophrenia, but not the hallucinations and delusions that would warrant the full diagnosis. In retrospect, his schizophrenia diagnosis seemed less due to Ed exhibiting the actual symptoms and more as a way for professionals to attempt to explain how a 15-year-old child could be capable of the brutal double homicide of his own grandparents. It's really only been in recent years that psychiatric medicine has begun pushing back against the stigma that in order to commit a heinous crime, the individual must clearly be mentally ill. As a society, we tend to look at people who have what we consider to be behavior and conduct problems as a symptom of a psychological disorder, which has led to the false public perception that criminal behavior almost always goes hand in hand with psychiatric illness. And the high levels of reported mental illness in prison populations are mostly due to the false labeling of criminals as having a psychiatric illness. An individual with an untreated mental illness is actually far more likely to become the victim of a violent crime due to their vulnerable state of mind than a perpetrator of one. And it's incredibly offensive and stigmatizing to a large percentage of the population living with a diagnosed mental illness to perpetuate the stereotype by loosely throwing around terms like schizo or bipolar. And I also do want to throw in that another reason why I think this label of mental illness would get used so much on perpetrators of violent crime is because it's a way to slap a label on them as a quote other, mm -hmm. lock them up and throw away the key and say, well, they're not normal. So they don't count basically as a member of normal functioning society, which means we don't need to examine our society as a whole and the issues that are present within it that could contribute to someone becoming a violent offender. Mm -hmm. So like in Ed's case, there were clearly things in his nature that were troubling from the beginning, but the way that he was raised, the way that he was not quote unquote nurtured absolutely had an effect on his aggression, his need to assert dominance and control, his hatred of women. And it was so much easier to just be like, oh, well, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. Oh, he's broke. His mind's broken. Right. Instead of being like, you know, maybe it's not good for parents to not show affection to their kids. Maybe it's not good for kids to be isolated when they're exhibiting troubling behavior. Maybe they Forced need- into the basement oh my god she noticed troubling emotions from him as young as two years old that is so sad that is so sad because i have a two-year-old and all he wants is love and affection and again without excusing any of the things he goes on to do i wish that i could go back 
and mm-hmm. you just, just always hug him yeah i just want to let that little boy know that he is loved and he is okay and please leave the cats alone oh gosh but it I really can't. does make you wonder. It's one of those cases really for me where had he been given what he needed, would he have become what he became? And we will never know and it is mm-hmm. not an excuse for what he goes on to do. But no. we can grieve and wish that things had been different for him as a child. Absolutely. Ed would spend the next five years of his formative teenage years in the Atascadero State Mental Hospital with 1,600 other inmates, 24 of whom were murderers and 800 who were sex offenders. The other inmates would give him quality life advice, you know, like if he was going to rape or kill anyone, he had to make sure to get rid of absolutely all the evidence. Solid advice. Kemper had a facade of being polite and cooperative because as he learned, that worked the best for him as an extremely tall and large person so he could make people feel at ease around him. He seemed perfectly normal and good-mannered on the outside, but on the inside, he was concealing constant and aggressive fantasies about murdering people and eating eyeballs. Ed would later tell a prison psychiatrist that he had these violent fantasies the entire time he was at the hospital, but kept them completely hidden from the professionals assessing him because he was desperate to get out. Ed's IQ placed him in the superior range, so a psychiatrist thought it would be a good idea to give him more responsibility. And at 17, they started him off with sharpening pencils, and by 19, he worked his way all the way up to giving out, scoring, and filing psychiatric eval tests for the other inmates. That's quite a jump. He went from pencil sharpener to full-blown psychiatrist, <laughs> apparently. You know, pay cuts. Kemper's genius was in his ability to effectively manipulate the therapist and psychiatrist. By having access to the contents of the test he was administrating, he could memorize the answers to get good scores and get released as soon as possible. He was honorably discharged from Atascadero in 1969 with his record sealed, which meant they still existed but couldn't be found by any future employers who might be running a background check on him. So Ed walked out of the hospital on his 21st birthday in December 1969, and as the psychiatry staff watched him stroll out the door, they allowed themselves a moment of pride for their treatment success story. They just knew that Ed was fully cured of whatever demons in its past had led the troubled youth to brutally murder both of his grandparents. Edmund Kemper would go on to facilitate a nationwide campaign advocating for ethical hunting, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations for local California cat rescues, and he never creepily stared at another young woman again. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's that how it been should nice, have gone. Maybe it would have if somebody had gave him a fucking hug when he was a toddler. No, hugs are bad. Now, there was one major stipulation of Ed's release that a psychiatrist begged him not to break, and that was he was not supposed to be around his mother, Clarnell, at all, which should be pretty easy. Yeah, stay away from Clarnell, whom he probably ranted about every day in his therapy appointment. So that was probably at the top of every single file. Clarnell is canceled. Clarnell, Clarnell, Clarnell. I don't blame him. So naturally, the California Youth Authority released him directly into her custody. Oh my god. Ed enrolled in college and had aspirations of becoming a police officer, but he wouldn't be accepted into the police academy due to his extreme height. 
which is an interesting. Yeah, apparently there was a height restriction put on cops that I don't think is in effect any longer, but it was around for a while and it actually had a lot more to do with they when officers reached a certain height, they wouldn't fit into all the like I regulation w- I was police thinking stuff. Like <laughs> Jacob 6'4" And homie can barely fit in my car. Yep. So, 6'9". So, it was more to do with them being cheapos than... Because mm. you would think you would want an army of giant, intimidating Hell police yeah. officers. Hell yeah, 6'9", dude, coming at me. Yeah. Whatever you say, officer. <laughs> but not if you looked like Ed. No, the glasses, <laughs> the mustache, that's a no-no. No. A 6'9", Jensen Ackles coming at you, though. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Hold on, I have to imagine that. However, he still became pretty tight buddies with the local police force, so much so that they dubbed him Big Ed and would hang out with him at the bar and get his opinion on various investigations. Living under the same roof as his mother proved to be a disaster and their arguments were described by Ed as being constant and vicious emotionally and verbally. At one point, he actually saved up enough money to move out but would always end up living back with Carnell again. They would have horrible, vicious, verbal fights over absolutely nothing, which were fueled by both their raging addiction to alcohol. One of the worst was apparently over whether or not Ed should go to the dentist. As a wife to a dentist? Eh, you don't have to. (laughs) Just brush. I thought you were about to say, I'll give Clarnell this one. Nah. But can you I don't have, like the dentist either. Can you imagine them just drunkenly screaming at each other and Clarnell being dentist. like, I'll go to the dentist. And be like, shut up, ma'am. Honestly, though, ma'am, I... Make me some pizza rolls. Suddenly, he's Cartman. <laughs> <laughs> I truly can't imagine the state of their teeth, though. Ugh. I know far too much about teeth decay and oral diseases, so... Probably gross. I can't even imagine the pure toxicity that that household must have been. But also, they were weirdly codependent on each other. Like, in the reading I was doing for this case, Ed would drive his mother to work at Berkeley and pick her up. And a co-worker that Clarnell had at Berkeley remembered that Ed would always come and pick up Clarnell. That they seemed very, like, close, but as in weirdly, like, codependent dependent but they were completely non-affectionate with each other like you know he never hugged her he never put his arm around her but every day you know he was bringing her and picking her up and so they had this weird I don't even know I what can, the I right word totally is I understand it because yeah. I mean it's just like a toxic codependency while also mm-hmm. bringing out the absolute worst in each other and screaming at each other like they'd probably start drinking together and be kind of chummy and then one of them would like chew cereal too loud and the other would fly off the handle oh. and are we talking about my marriage or Ed and no his we're talking mother? about my marriage ah okay okay uh, i'm just thinking about i guess that's a normal issue to fly off the handle about but you know but i mean that is toxic relationship yeah that is 
pretty yeah. to the book. And like he can't ever break away from her. He ends up back with her after being let out and she had to agree to be given custody exactly. of him. She yeah, she well, could have said no. that she got custody of him? I get it because like the psychiatric ward what not. Right. But he was 21. He was right. no longer a child. Yeah. I, I guess because of the legal things that mm-hmm. happened, maybe there had to be someone who was assuming legal responsibility for him but I don't know that's actually a good question I don't know I think letting him live by himself versus living with crazy ass Clarnell yeah but I don't know I don't know and he did move out it said I think we had this written already but that he tried to move out several times Mm -hmm. but that he would always wound up yeah and that he couldn't get away and I, I think that goes with you saying like they were dependent on one another but mm-hmm. I think that goes back to the part of your brain as a child that mm-hmm. especially a boy that relies on your mother yeah he had to have been seeking oh absolutely that validation and yeah just anything from her yeah so towards the end of 1969 Ed got a job with the highway department and with the $15,000 settlement he received from a motorcycle accident that's a lot of money in in night. 19- 1970s. I'm just saying, $15,000? Dang. He bought himself a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy 500 and began cruising around Berkeley. While cruising, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking, and he began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. He began by just picking up girls and peacefully letting them go, and according to Kemper, he picked up around 150 such female hitchhikers, enjoying the thrill of knowing that if at any moment he wanted to, he could overpower his passenger, and he would pat himself on the back afterwards for using restraint. But eventually, as it so often goes, this fantasy of absolute control over a woman was no longer enough before he began to have irresistible homicidal sexual urges, which he called his little zapples. And he began acting on these urges. He knew he would have to be extremely calculated and careful with his preparation and method, thanks to all of the advice he received when he was living at a Tuscadero. So he kept a radio transmitter in his car that would pick up local police chatter so he would know if the area he was in was clear. And he convinced Clarnell, who worked on the Berkeley campus, to get an A parking sticker, traditionally reserved for students and employees who needed to park on campus. Most chillingly, once Ed decided whomever he was picking up would be a victim, when they'd gotten in his car and closed the door, Ed would reach over and pretend like the door hadn't shut properly, and while reopening and shutting the door, would slip a chapstick tube into the locking mechanism, which would suddenly make it impossible to open the door from the inside. Oh my god. Mm -mm. I am never going to look at a tube of chapstick the same way again. Also, another reason why I will never step foot in a cab, Uber, Lyft, anything. Nope. Nope. Absolutely not. After the murder, he would often drive around with his victim's severed head in the trunk, sometimes for a few days before disposing of it in a new location. On May 7th, 1972, Kemper was driving in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State University, Marianne Pesci and Anita Mary Lucessa, with the pretense of taking them to Stanford University. 
After driving for an hour or so, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, with which he was familiar from his work at the highway department, without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go. It was there that he handcuffed Pesci and locked Lucessa in the trunk, and like we went over in the beginning, he then stabbed and strangled Pesci to death, then killed Lucessa in a similar manner. Kemper later confessed that while handcuffing Pesci, he apparently brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts, and this embarrassed him. He even apologized for it, despite going on to murder her minutes later. Kemper then put both of the women's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was actually stopped on the way by a police officer for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not realize he had bodies in the car. Imagine being that police officer. Oh, I can't even imagine the thought process, especially since he's buddies with police officers. Oh yeah, like what if it was somebody he even knew and they were like, oh, hey Ed, yep, see you got hey, that taillight. How you doing? I'ma let you off with the warning, Big Ed. You better get that fixed. Trigger warning for some very graphic content coming up in basically the rest of this episode. Kemper's roommate was not there when he got home, so he took the bodies into the apartment where he photographed and sexually assaulted them before dismembering them. He then put the body parts into garbage bags, which he abandoned near the Loma Prieta mountain. And this next part is really bad. Before disposing of Pesci and Lucessa's severed heads in a ravine, Kemper also sexually assaulted both of them. And if you remember from what we went over in the beginning, in August of that year, Pesci's skull was later found on Loma Prieta Mountain. An extensive search failed to turn up the rest of Pesci's remains. On the evening of September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old student named Aiko Ku, who had decided to hitchhike to dance class after missing her bus. He again drove to a remote area where he pulled a gun on Ku before accidentally locking himself out of his car. For, for having an IQ of like 145 or whatever it was, he was dumb. However, Ku led him back inside, despite the fact that the gun was still in the car. Back inside the car, he proceeded to choke her unconscious, rape her, and kill her. I want to know how in the world he convinced her to let him back into that car. That, more than anything else in this entire horrendous story, is for some sick reason fascinating to me because it has to be like the peak of his manipulative, sadistic genius that he was able to, after pulling a gun on someone, to be like, no, just let me back in and I promise I won't hurt you. That's truly chilling. terrifying. That is truly terrifying. To be 15 years old Ugh. and driven to a remote area. Yeah, I don't know the thought process yeah. that I would have gone through, so yeah. I can only imagine what. And she was a child. I mean, 15 years old is a child. And she was doing things that we attribute to somebody who's like more of a college student age, but this was like a young high school age kid. So maybe it wasn't even manipulative genius so much as he just intimidated her by being the adult. Right. You know, I don't know. Yeah. She, I mean, she is a child. Yeah. 
Kemper then packed Ku's body into the trunk of his car and went to the nearby bar to have a few drinks, then returned to his apartment. He probably went to that police bar and was like, yo buddies, how's the case going? You know, that's exactly what he did. And the whole time he was just being like, oh. Mm. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, quote unquote, admiring his catch like a fisherman. Get fucked edmund emile kemper 13 fucking pound baby back at his apartment he had sexual intercourse with the corpse then dismembered and disposed of the remains in a similar manner as his previous two victims ku's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and she put up hundreds of flyers asking for information however she did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status On January 7th, 1973, Kemper, who had by this time moved back in with Clarnell, was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picked up 18-year-old co-ed Cynthia Ann Cindy Shaw. He drove to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove back to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his bedroom overnight. When his mother left for work the next morning, he sexually assaulted her remains, removed the bullet from her corpse, then dismembered and decapitated her in his mother's bathtub. Kemper kept Shaw's severed head for a few days and would regularly sexually assault it. He then buried it in his mother's garden, facing upward toward her bedroom. After Ed's arrest, he would say that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. He discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off of a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all except Shaw's head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle, according to law enforcement. A pathologist would later determine that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. On February 5th, 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Ed left his house in search of possible victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students had been advised to accept rides only from cars with university stickers on them. Little did they know, he had one. Yes, he did. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen Liu on the UCSC campus. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered his car first, reassuring Lou to also enter. He then fatally shot Thorpe and then Lou with his pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Edmund then brought his victims back to his mother's house. This time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpse into his mother's house. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and discarded their remains the next morning. Some remains were found in Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found near Route 1. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, quote, The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without a head. Unquote. I don't even know what to say because I'm so horrified. Who is mm. also telling a child, you cut off the head and the body dies? Oh, that's... 
On April 20th, 1973, Kemper was coming home from a party, and 52-year-old Clarnell was awakened by her son with his arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Ed come into her room, and she commented to him, I suppose you're gonna want to sit up all night and talk now. Ed replied, nope, good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep, snuck back into her room, and bludgeoned her with a claw hammer before slitting her throat with a pen knife. He then decapitated his own mother and sexually assaulted her severed head before using it as a dartboard. Ed would later state that he placed her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour, threw darts at it, and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and placed them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back out into the sink. Kemper would later say, that seemed appropriate, as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Kemper hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went off to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor, Sally Hallett, over to the house to have some dinner and watch a movie. No, Sally. When Sally arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away together on vacation. He then put Sally's corpse in a closet, obscured any outward signs of a disturbance, and left a note for the police. It read, quote, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Quote. Afterward, Kemper fled the scene. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and he believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Sally when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and her friend, but the police did not take his call seriously at first and told him to call back at a later time. Several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer that he personally knew. He confessed to that officer of killing his mother and Sally, then waited for the police arrive to take him into custody. Upon his capture, Kemper also confessed to the murders of the six co-ed female students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing and the point of near exhaustion, near collapse. I just said, to hell with it, and called it all off. Wow, Ed, I'm sorry that you got exhausted from all of your murdering and raping and pillaging. Also to hell with his plan, killing Sally to cover up killing his mother and then him just confessing to killing them. That to me is like, Ed really seemed to go off the deep end there at the end because that makes no sense. Does anything he's done make sense? Because my brain feels a little twitchy. Reading all of this is like, 
it feels like reading a bad horror movie script. Like, if you were sitting and watching this in a horror movie, you'd be like, okay, this is a little over the top and unnecessary. Who thinks of this? Nobody. This is Edmund. It is no. disgusting, and I am shooketh. Amen, Sister Suffragette. As we move on to the trial, Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. He was signed the Chief Public Defender of Santa Cruz County, Attorney Jack Jackson. Due to Ed's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Kemper twice tried to commit suicide in custody, and his trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of them, Dr. Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including under truth serum. When you do that, isn't it inadmissible in court? I would assume so. And relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed these strips of flesh in a casserole. Ugh. Nevertheless, Fort determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case and stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Ed later recanted the confession of cannibalism. Yeah, he didn't eat those people. He just liked... Nah, he did other fucked up shit. Uh, he had stuff that was worse. California used the McNaughton Standard, which held that for the defendant to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that, at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason, from disease of mind, and not to know that the nature of quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know, that what he was doing was wrong. Kimber appeared to have known that the nature of its acts were wrong, and he had shown signs of malice aforethought. On November 1st, Kemper took the stand and he testified that he had killed the victims because he had wanted them for himself like possessions and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed only by someone with an aberrant mind. Ew. He said that two things inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was, quote, kind of like blacking out. No, sir. You knew exactly what you were doing the whole time. You don't get a plead insanity nope. just so you can go back to the mental hospital and manipulate everyone again. And sharpen pencils and... Work your way up mm -hmm. to being a psychiatrist. Goodbye, Ed. No, sir. On November 8th, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. It would have taken me five damn minutes. <laughs> So, he asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. Ew. You know, back to his play days of Ew. electric chair. However, with the moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life with each count, and these terms to be served concurrently. And he was sentenced to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. You will be unsurprised to know that Edmund Kemper has gone on in infamy to influence many works of film and literature. Both he and Ed Gein were used as an inspiration for the character of Buffalo Bill in the 1988 novel by Thomas Harris, The Silence of the Lambs. Like Kemper, Bill fatally shoots his grandparents as a teenager. Dean Kuntz cited Ed Kemper as an inspiration for his character Edgler Vess in his 1996 novel, Intensity. The character Patrick Bateman in the 2000 film American Psycho mistakenly attributes a quote by Kemper to Gein, saying, 
You know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. And that is our coverage on Edmund Kemper. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to go home and hug my baby. I'm going to go home and try to scrub the name Edmund Kemper from my brain forever. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch like a Disney movie. Pet me up a little bit. Yeah. Talking about Ed Kemper feels like a true crime podcast rite of passage. He's a super infamous one, a super terrible one. He really shaped a lot of pop culture and there's a lot of things we could have gone further in depth with that we didn't. And if you would like to go even further into a sick deep dive on his depraved mind, you can check out the books Edmund Kemper, The True Story of the Co-Ed Killer, Edmund Kemper, The True Story of the Brutal Co-Ed Butcher, and The Co-Ed Killer, A Study of the Murders, Mutilations, and Matricide of Edmund Kemper III. But I would not recommend it. But if you're like us and you don't want to hear anything else about Edmund Kemper III, you can pop over to Instagram and follow us on Camping is Cancelled. You can also send us a Gmail at campingiscancelled at gmail.com. We would love to hear any of your case suggestions that you may want to hear us cover. And if you feel so inclined, you can find us on Patreon at Camping is Cancelled. And be sure to join us next week when we go down under and share the story of John Wayne Glover, not Gacy, the granny killer.